we um, are starting to use primary sources for our understanding of the historical periods under discussion. Primary sources, writings by people who lived at the time. And as with all such sources, the great advantage is vividness, immediacy, the people lived through it, and the problem is distance from us and strangeness. Procopius and Gregory of Tours, who we'll be starting out with next week, are very different writers. Procopius, uh, much more conscious of style, uh, a layman, somebody operating within the classical tradition. Uh, Gregory of Tours, certainly uh, uh, a person for whom style is not paramount, or at least uh, it's not the classical notions of rhetoric, smoothness, uh, and um, uh, vividness that Procopius has. He is a bishop. He's very concerned with supernatural events and the church, or let's say supernatural events controlled by the church. Procopius, as you've seen, is not very concerned with Christianity and the supernatural events that concern him such as Justinian walking around the palace with no head, are not Christian supernatural. They're, they're from some other older supernatural tradition. But both Gregory of Tours and Procopius require an effort to figure out. Why not just read something by a writer, a historian living now who may be uh, easier to figure out and who is writing with you and me in mind uh, because of the vividness and because of the trickiness of trying to reconstruct not only what happened, which is hard enough, but also what the mood of people was and what the reaction was. We're talking about Justinian today, so uh, a um, uh, emperor whose rule occupies most of the um, sixth century, 527 to 565. So we're concentrating on the sixth century as part of this overall uh, survival and crisis of the Eastern Roman Empire. His reign, or more precisely the earlier part of his reign until about 540, is the height, apogee, maximum power of this empire, which succeeds in, shall we say, reconquering or conquering, taking back or adding the parts of the Western Roman Empire, many parts of the Rom Western Roman Empire, that had been lost effectively to the barbarian invasions of the fifth century, if you uh, uh, still can refer to your map or uh, if your memory of geography is okay. Um, the major areas of conquest of Justinian beyond the borders of the old Eastern Empire are first North Africa, which is the coast of modern Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, uh, and even uh, Morocco, held by the Vandals and seized by Justinian. <coughs> Parts of Spain, coastal Spain, Mediterranean Spain, 
held by the Visigoths, and Italy held by the Ostrogoths. This is the centerpiece of Justinian's reign, and for a time it looked as if he had, in effect, recreated the empire of Constantine and Diocletian. But as we'll see, this is a uh, triumph with a terrible price. The terrible price being that it weakened Byzantium. Now, when we say of figures in the past, or even figures in the recent past, that uh, their policies were a mistake because it turned out that uh, uh, the future enemy would be something other than what they were fighting, we can say that with the advantage of being able to see what was going to happen. In other words, you know, there are people who argue that the invasion of Iraq was a folly or that the expenditures on the uh, aggressive foreign policy of the first years of the 21st century was foolish because as it turns out, economic problems, domestic problems, the uh, mortgage uh, uh, bubble, was really the problem that people should have been addressing, or they should have been addressing the deficit. You know, you can say that, it's, it's in, its, in its own way it's a fact, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what people <coughs> at the time should have thought of. Thus, we know from last lecture that, first of all, Justinian should have concentrated on the Persians. The Persians on his eastern frontier, who didn't interest him, whom he just wanted to sort of pacify in order to go west and make his conquest, the Persians would turn out to be his big, the biggest enemy of the empire. And so, you know, if you were um, plotting this out as a kind of international political strategy, you could say, uh, forget about the Ostrogoths, forget about the Vandals, build up that frontier, invade Persia, uh, keep your army there. And indeed, with a little more hindsight, we can say, oh my gosh, in 80 years, the Muslims are going to take the eastern part of your empire. Well, obviously, there's no way he is going to be expected reasonably to know that, except if you're looking at a distance from over a thousand years, 1,500 years, uh, then, you know, we can say, sure, the eastern frontier turns out to be the point of vulnerability. Uh, so, a classic kind of historical problem or early Middle Ages midterm question is, you know, Justinian, um, uh, overreacher or reasonable uh, uh, guy, or the conquest of the West, folly or uh, grandeur. Uh, and it's both. It is a classic example of overextension. Overextension of empires, meaning that empires weaken themselves at some point fatally by simply getting either too big or spending too much money, and the two are linked. <laughs> you get too big, you have to spend more money to defend yourself. Not really having the resources to keep what you have. The British Empire, to take a... Uh, a, a a reasonably clear and neutral example, at some point, is simply too uh, large uh, for the resources of a weakened Great Britain. 
and uh, our colleague Paul Kennedy has explored uh, um, quite memorably empires that simply could not maintain their commitments. The Spanish Empire, the um, British Empire, and as it turned out after uh, Kennedy wrote his book, the Russian Soviet Empire. And this is a uh, pattern in history that is, uh, that repeats itself. The question, however, is under the circumstances and assuming the existence of that empire, what are reasonable policies to preserve it or to uh, extend it? We know about Justinian's wars of conquest and of defense. He did have some wars against the Persians. Uh, his wars of conquest and defense largely, although not exclusively, through Procopius. But he is our best source in two works. One, The Secret History, and the other, much more extensive, a series of books called The Wars. And they're divided in Persian Wars, African Wars, Italian Wars. In The Wars, you can see that once the Italian War starts to go badly, Procopius's opinion of Justinian and of the great general Belisarius tend to change from a kind of admiration and go kill, get em spirit to um, uneasiness, to blaming, to a kind of finger pointing. So we're dependent on Procopius. And if, when you first read the wars, it seems very, very different from the secret history. It seems like it's by Thucydides or some other sensible, objective Greek writer. And he indeed is writing in that tradition. Those of you who've read Thucydides will remember. He describes often folly and very terrible events, but soberly, factually, in a fashion of Olympian sorrow at the folly of uh, policymakers and generals. And to some extent, Procopius has that tone, which seems to contrast very much with the vehemence of the secret history, leading some people to assume that he was crazy when he wrote the secret history, or off balance, let's say, or uh, that the wars represented uh, the real Procopius and this represented kind of his evil twin. Uh, the term evil twin doesn't appear in Gibbon, but uh, it could, uh, it could. <coughs> um, what makes it more complicated is a third work of his called Buildings. <coughs> Buildings is, as the name implies, a book about Justinian's building campaign, which includes, but is by no means limited to, the Church of Hagia Sophia in modern Istanbul, which is, uh, continues to be, to this day, an extraordinary building of such immensity and such space in the interior, a dome that seems <coughs> unsupported by anything and that seems to cover half the earth when you're inside it. Both splendid and an extraordinary engineering feat, uh, and then uh, Justinian built churches. Uh, uh, he built uh, uh, churches that st uh, stand in Ravenna with <coughs> unbelievably beautiful mosaics, Ravenna in Italy. And these are important because 
Ravenna was outside the zone of territory controlled by the iconoclasts. And therefore, while the iconoclasts tended to take down or whitewash representations of anything divine, uh, their reach did not extend as far as Ravenna. So in a way, the best, the best examples of Byzantine mosaic art of the uh, uh, earliest period, not in a way, but absolutely are uh, outside of the, um, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean and in Italy. Buildings, though, is not just an account of Justinian's architectural essays, but a panegyric, a praise of Justinian, almost as slavishly adulatory as the secret history is um, a condemnation. And as I suggested last time, these actually go together. In a society of um, where tremendous power is concentrated in one person or one court or one setting, the reactions of people tend to be adulation, which is to some extent forced out of them, or at least uh, invited by the ruler. So again, to take an obvious analogy, Stalin, for his 70th birthday, was pleased that the greatest museum of Moscow, all the permanent exhibit was sort of set aside and <coughs> warehoused, and the whole museum was given over to gifts to Stalin on his 70th birthday from a grateful people. He didn't have to order it. Somebody came up with the idea and he said, oh, uh, don't go to any trouble. They had the thing that's adulatory. This is what later would be called the cult of personality. It's just one of hundreds of examples. Naming cities after him, uh, uh, lauding him as the great gardener, the friend of children, um, the uh, 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 successor of Lenin, and so forth. The other side of that is a kind of hatred and diatribe, more or less secret. There were lots of jokes about Stalin. You could, and people were, sent to Siberia or executed for telling these jokes. But they were very good jokes under the circumstances. Um, this is some of the explanation for how you can get, at the same time, adulation and demonization. The interesting thing, of course, is it's in the same guy, Procopius. And although people at one time thought, oh, well, he wrote the buildings earlier and then became disillusioned, he did become disillusioned. Everybody became disillusioned because after 540, things started to go wrong. There's a huge plague in 542 that kills off a third of the population, for starters. But it looks as if he's writing this stuff more or less at the same time. The secret history is not finished. That's why it begins so oddly, not with Justinian, but with Belisarius, and Belisarius' wife, being kicked around by his wife, uh, and Theodora, and you sort of don't know who these people are, and then suddenly we're at Justinian. Well, you know, the order uh, of this thing is not yet set. He probably um, did not finish it. He did, however, want it to be published after his death. It's called the secret history or the anecdota, um, uh, sort of stories, uh, by later writers. It survives in only one manuscript, as I think I remarked. Nevertheless, because it has a highly rhetorical style, it clearly was to be read by other people. 
It's not just a set of jottings for his own satisfaction. It is a work that he hoped would be uh, uh, widely published when he was safely dead. An anecdote literally means, not stories as it would now, anecdotes, the false cognate. It means um, not to be published. <laughs> so in the secret history, Justinian is a monster. Let's uh, set that aside for a moment and talk about what uh, Justinian actually did. Justinian uh, was the power behind the throne of his um, uh, uncle Justin I. So in a way his rule goes back to the 520s, uh, to the five teens. Justinian's character, as portrayed by Procopius in both the wars and in the secret history, is very smart, hard-working. Procopius says he almost never slept. Devoted to details. Capable of immersing himself in many different things. Architecture church ceremonies, theology, and law. He was of humble birth. His uncle, his family were soldiers. They were from modern, oh, Croatia, more or less. The Balkan Peninsula, the former Yugoslavia, Illyrians as would have been the term used at the time. He grew up speaking some form of Latin, and he is, as I said last time, the last emperor whose native language was Latin, as opposed to Greek. He dressed very simply, and he was approachable. He did not have that awe-inspiring splendor of Diocletian or <coughs> Constantine, for example. He was seldom angry, but he was cold and seems to have had no trace of mercy or kindness. Reminds me of some professors of mine. <coughs> he was intolerant, he was unforgiving, and he was merciless. He had a grandiose conception of the empire, and he was willing to um, tax his subjects heavily and to endanger the security of the eastern frontier in order to expand his territory and his prestige. I think that is a fair judgment to make. He believed that his predecessors had, ne through neglect, lost what the ancient Romans had conquered. And he believed that you couldn't call it the Roman Empire if all it consisted of were possessions in the Eastern Mediterranean. And as we've said, he did indeed conquer, at great cost, North Africa, parts of Spain, and Italy. He had a, I think it's wrong to use the term totalitarian, but certainly a very strong conception of imperial rulership. 
He tried to impose doctrines on the church in order to resolve the age-old monophysite question. He was no more successful than Constantine or Theodosius, by the way, but for example, just to give you a sense of his methods, he kidnapped the Pope in Rome, tried to browbeat him, uh, and exiled him to the Crimean Peninsula where he died. Theodora. One of the most interesting things about Justinian is uh, that he gave so much power <coughs> and uh, uh, respect to his consort, Theodora, who was of even more humble birth than he was. Now, I don't think we have to believe Procopius on the details of Theodora's youth. He certainly reserves his most uh, hysterical diatribes for Theodora. I think it's fair to say that Procopius was not a great admirer of uh, competent women. Uh, the historian Burry, uh, J.B. Burry, one of the great uh, uh, historians of late Rome and Byzantium who wrote about uh, 100, 120 years ago, uh, describes her youth as stormy, um, an adjective that I like because <laughs> it could be anything. Her stormy youth. Probably her father was a bear keeper, somebody who kept bears for the entertainment of people at the circus, an animal trainer. She was the mother of a legitimate child. Uh, she may have had a background of amateur or quasi-professional semi-pro prostitution. Notice that Procopius condemns her first for being a prostitute and then for suppressing prostitution once she became empress. Uh, there's a logic to that. Procopius is not opposed to prostitution. One has the sense that he's, if not a connoisseur, at least a um, uh, you know, a, a now and then uh, partaker. But for prostitutes to be anything other than this uh, firmly subordinated class, that is, for prostitutes to have some sort of voice or opinion or uh, for people to um, endeavor to help them or respect them is, uh, in his mind, uh, ridiculous and scandalous. Procopius is a conservative. He doesn't like the weakening of the senatorial classes. He represents the land-owning interests. He doesn't like too much imperial power. He's quite happy to respect the emperor, but is angry when the emperor seems to be taxing rich people. He doesn't like upstarts. Upstarts like Justinian, who's, who is he? Soldier's child. Upstarts like Theodora. Upstarts like uh, um, Antonia, the wife of Belisarius. Justinian and Theodora ruled as a team. They had very different personalities. They're a very interesting team. Theodora loved sleep, luxury, uh, was sympathetic to the monophysites. Justinian was completely the opposite. An insomniac, somebody who dressed in uh, extremely ordinary clothing and uh, firmly anti-monophysite. 
they in fact supported different factions in the circus. I mean, here's a, you know, uh, um, a giant's jets marriage. Uh, the circus. The circus was a arena uh, attached to the palace where the emperor would make his appearances at sporting events. Although we've said Justinian was approachable, by that we mean that um, you know, people in the government or uh, uh, in high positions could see him without too much ceremony. That doesn't mean he's approachable just to anybody. In an absolutist state, there are certain kinds of events at which the ruler has to show himself or traditionally shows himself. So uh, in the Soviet era, the May Day parades. There's a reviewing stand in Moscow at the Tomb of Lenin, and foreign correspondents and intelligence people would try to see who was in and out of power by who appeared with the leader, who wasn't there, where they were standing. Uh, the Hippodrome, the um, um, horse racing arena in Constantinople, was a bit like this. The emperor had his own box, and the people could make sort of celebratory gestures to him, praise him, and if they were in a rebellious mood, criticize him as well. There were circus factions, as they're called. That is, people who were cheering for one side or another, the most important of which in Constantinople are the blues and the greens. The greens tended to be somewhat pro-monophysite and Theodora was a partisan of the Greens. The Blues, anti-Monophysite, Justinian was a partisan of theirs. In 532, these circus factions revolted. Partly it's a tax revolt. Partly it's uh, uh, factions fighting. It doesn't do to try to probe what these factions represented too much. After a while, they're simply factions. They're simply people who like to fight or who like to root for one side or another. But they um, are rowdy and even criminal. They have very outlandish costumes. Uh, they expend all their money and all their energy on sporting events and on rowdiness associated with them. Uh, this is not completely unfamiliar. Uh, the prefect of the city arrested seven people for rioting and condemned them to death. Uh, two of them escaped when the rope broke. It always pays to maintain your, I mean, this is a tip from a historian, uh, always pays to maintain your coercive equipment. Uh, once these guys escaped, then they were heroes. And they were shielded from the crowd, they were put in a monastery where they had sanctuary, and conveniently enough, one was a blue and one was a green. So the blues and the greens united. They ran through the streets demanding pardon for the uh, escaped, uh, the escapees, and when Justinian refused, a riot took place. The battle cry of these rioters was victory, right? Nika, not to be confused with sporting equipment. Nika, victory, the crowds tried to overthrow Justinian and Theodora. And in the process, they burned down a lot of the city. 
Um, Justinian is reported by Procopius as being ready to flee, but Theodora stiffened his resolve, basically telling him she preferred to die in the shroud of uh, the imperial robes rather than flee in disguise. And mobilized uh, the generals Belisarius and Narses. We've met uh, Belisarius uh, already. And they cracked down on the mob and killed maybe 40,000 of them. Right? How many people attend a Yankee game? About 80,000. So um, 30, 40,000 people, and uh, that ended the riots. Constantinople was partially burned. Justinian loved building. This was a great opportunity. He couldn't have asked for a better uh, um, moment, in a sense. Uh, of course, it required more taxes, but people now had seen the problems with resisting taxes. And so this is where we start the building of the new Hagia Sophia that we see today. Built in five years. I mean, <laughs> compare this to grand uh, projects like, you know, uh, an exit on the Connecticut Turnpike, <laughs> which take 15 years or so. Uh, the way you build something in five years is by an incredible number of workmen um, and uh, a lavish expenditure of money. The patriarch's throne in Hagia Sophia was made of silver. It weighed 40,000 pounds. The Columns are of porphyry, many of them. Uh, it uses a lot of glass in order to admit light, and the light comes from so far away that it, you know, it forms these wonderful patterns depending on the time of day. Justinian also rebuilt the Senate, the baths, uh, the imperial palace, uh, the church of St. Uh, Irene, the church of the apostles, etc., etc. He started his wars against Persia before the Nika revolt. And the war with Persia is one episode of a multi-century war. In this case, it's over influence in the Caucasus. But it's really about trying to protect <coughs> Byzantium from Persian invasion. But as I said, Justinian's interest was not really in Persia. He was interested in uh, peace with Persia and in securing enough of the frontier so that the Persians couldn't launch, uh, at least not easily, a surprise attack. And in 531, the Eastern Roman Empire and Persia signed a perpetual peace. And Justinian then moved his troops to the west, the site of his real ambitions. The Vandal War in North Africa was a triumph. What we're seeing is one of those cases in which a policy seems to succeed miraculously easy. The Vandals fell, it seemed, without a fight. Here, the people who had been the terror of Rome 120 years earlier, uh, 100, and, uh, um, 100 years earlier, who had sacked Rome in 455, who had seized the granary of Rome in 430, uh, fell almost, it seemed, without a fight. 
through the native Berber population um, who were subordinate to the Vandals, desert people, uh, revolted, uh, and they uh, were able to raid the coast and to undermine the position of the, uh, the Byzantine occupiers. The next stop was Italy in 535. 533, 534, the conquest of Africa. But Italy would take 20 years, not one. And in the process, Italy itself would be devastated. And with that devastation, a lot of classical culture would be lost. What wasn't destroyed by the fifth century invasions, and remember we said the Ostrogoths <coughs> were pretty uh, uh, reasonable uh, occupiers, would be destroyed by the Romans themselves. I will not uh, uh, tax you with the ins and outs and ups and downs of this campaign. Suffice it to say that the general Belisarius at first was able to triumph in Italy. The Ostrogothic resistance, however, proved to be <coughs> much stronger than he expected. And um, uh, Justinian recalled Belisarius. Almost all of Italy was reoccupied by the Ostrogoths, and it was only the second uh, general, Narcissus, who from 552 to 555 was able to take over Italy. Um, 540 is the year that Ravenna falls to the Byzantines, and it seems to be the zenith of Justinian's reign. In that year, the Persians invaded. That perpetual peace had lasted nine years. And the Persian invasion was uh, quite successful. It resulted in the sack of the largest city of the empire after Constantinople and Alexandria, the city of Antioch uh, in the eastern Mediterranean. And this was followed then by um, a plague, the so-called Justinianic plague, which seems to be related, perhaps, to the plague of Pericles Athens, or the Athens of the Peloponnesian War, and maybe to the Black Death of 1348-1349. Hard to say. And in fact, uh, research now being done on the DNA uh, in mass graves uh, from that plague will perhaps tell us what the disease really was, although so far apparently it hasn't. So from 540 to 565, the death of Justinian, his policies are officially successful. 555, the fall of Italy. The plague eventually goes away. The Persians are pushed out of Antioch, at least. But the empire in the later years of Justinian is clearly staggering under the weight of taxation, economic downturn, declining population, and uh, overextension. They had conquered Italy, but the Italy they had conquered was ruined. And this empire stretching now from Sicily to uh, the Persian frontier is, um, is clearly uh, uh, too big 
to hold on to. So this is some of what Procopius's anger is about. Uh, but um, he, is, uh, he is bitter and disillusioned. He says, but I grow dizzy when I write of such suffering and pass on to future times its memories. Here he's speaking about uh, the Persian invasion of Antioch. For I cannot understand why it is the will of God to exalt the fortunes of a man or place and then cast them down for no reason that we can see. Now if you contrast him with what you've read in Augustine in the Confessions, you can see that Augustine has some reasons why this happens. Uh, Procopius resists the Christian explanation here, and this has led some observers to think, uh, in general, that he's not really somehow a Christian. He is, but he's writing in a classical tradition. And he is also, remember, an elitist, uh, a conservative. Uh, I use the term elitist in a fairly neutral sense. It's hard to expect someone whose writings come down to us uh, all this length of time to be somehow an ordinary. Yes, he represents a class that doesn't really like religious controversy, that doesn't really like all of the um, fussing about the natures uh, or nature of Christ. But there are other things that are not in Procopius that are somewhat surprising. Justinian is best known for architectural monuments like Hagia Sophia to historians for what we're essentially talking about today, the Western conquest, and for his legal reforms, the Justinianic Law Code, which is the basis of all European law. European, that is, as opposed to Anglo-American. Anglo-American law is a separate tradition. European law is based ultimately on uh, reworking of Roman law precedents. So I want to talk a little bit about his legal accomplishment, which Procopius, uh, a man who would be familiar with law courts, with legal systems, uh, doesn't tell us anything about in his works, virtually nothing. Justinian essentially codified the Roman law. And this is important not only because it's the basis of European law, but law is related to political and administrative order. However much we may hate bureaucracy or denounce administration, that is how governments uh, uh, provide whatever it is they are providing for their citizens. And the, since the alternative to government is anarchy, and since there are examples before our eyes of anarchic societies, it won't do to underestimate um, the benefits of law, however cynical we may be about its implementation. Roman law at the time of Justinian was, as law tends to be, um, learned and unwieldy. If you wanted to know how to resolve a question, you could go through the thousands and thousands of what are called responsa, or you could look at legislation. Just as in the Anglo-American tradition, and some of you will learn this very soon in law school, you can either look at statutes passed by legislatures or court cases, precedents. The equivalent of a statute, you know, Connecticut passes a law saying that you can't have a gun in your car. 
whereas Texas has laws that say you can have a gun in your car under such and such circumstances. Okay, so you have a whole set of <coughs> statute law, which would be imperial statutes in the Roman Empire, imperial legislation. Or, if the statutes don't cover a particular situation, or you want something that has the particularity, uh, my tree, a tree on my property falls on my neighbor's, did I mention this already? Yeah, that one, uh, on my neighbor's garage. Um, you know, who's, who's to blame? Okay, you go and you say, well, you know, at in this case came up in uh, Cincinnati in 1949, and this is what the judge found. In the absence of computers, the search for this stuff is very hard. In uh, Anglo-American law, this is called precedence. In Roman law, they're called responsa. And interestingly enough, this term is also singular, plural, replied to Jewish law. A response is a response. A judge, an expert, a law professor, in effect, is asked his opinion on something. And his response becomes preserved as a kind of precedent. These were voluminous and represented centuries of law. And even more, of course, the response are conflicted. One judge says, you have to pay uh, because it was your tree. Another says, uh, um, uh, it's an accident. He's responsible for his own uh, remedies. What do you do if you have a conflict of judges? What if you do if you have two kinds of contradictory responses? You've got to decide who takes, who is more authoritative, which one is better. So the work of Justinian's compilers was to sort out legislation, statutes, and the responses, and also to decide among contradictory ones. What is in this law? Well, what's in any law? We think of law as having mostly to do with criminals and stuff like that. But criminal law is actually very simple. It's like the Burgundian Code. If you murder someone, this is what's going to happen to you. There may be different kinds of killing. If you murder them with intent and premeditation, that's worse than if you murder them in a fight <coughs> and spontaneously. Um, it is uh, manslaughter is different from murder. Manslaughter is where you didn't intend to kill the person, uh, but you did. You punched him, and you didn't know that he had a weak heart, and he died. That's manslaughter. Um, you know, you punched him. You intended to hurt him, but you didn't intend to kill him, but he died. Um, vehicular manslaughter, you know. Uh, what's the difference between negligence, you should have seen something and you didn't, versus criminal intent? You did it deliberately. Um, <coughs> but it's very simple, the criminal law. There aren't a whole lot of gray areas, and you can get through the criminal code pretty quickly. But what about contracts? What about property? This is endless. This is endless. So, um, you know, in law school, criminal law will be, um, you know, the cream or uh, the, um, 
the tip of the proverbial iceberg or some little side issue. Most of your time is going to be spent on, those of you who go for this option, on um, you know, property and contracts. And that's what the Justinian law is mostly. Property and contracts, legal arrangements for buying and selling, inheriting, partnerships, guardianships, security, surety, obligations. This is a very advanced science in Roman law, as advanced as it is anywhere at any time. This is very different from you cut off one finger, you pay five solidi, which we were looking at last week. The work that ensued, the so-called Justinianic Code or the Corpus Juris Civilis, the body of civil law, uh, was drawn up in five years. Here again is an example of unbelievable rapidity compared with the length of time it takes now. Uh, uh, you know, merely to uh, reform the Connecticut tax code or the Connecticut traffic code, for that matter. Um, it was undertaken by a commission. Four books were issued. The first is a collection of statutes, and it's called the Codex. Collected laws of the Senate and imperial laws of previous centuries. The largest book is the, di the Digest, or in Latin, Digesta. The Digest is the weeded out responsa, organized by subject. So this would be where you would go to try and figure out what happens if a river changes its course a little and your land uh, is, it, it seems to be now taken over by your neighbor? Is the river the border or is a line, uh, an artificial line, the border? <coughs> the third book is a kind of textbook or a survey of the whole law and what it's supposed to mean called the Institutes. And the fourth is called the novella, or new laws, because obviously new laws would have to be made. The Codex, the Digest, the Institutes are in Latin, because Latin was the language of the Roman Empire. But the novella are in Greek, because Greek was the language of the empire now, now being 534 when this work was finished. The Justinianic Code is more, however, than a rearrangement of old laws. It displayed a consistent philosophy of government. Where law is more than precedent, it is an active force in society. The emperor is seen as the servant of the law, the implementer of the law, but he's also the master of the law. He is an absolute power. He is the embodiment of the law. This is a well-run, immense, burdensome empire. Procopius gives us, unreliable though he may be as to Justinian being a demon, etc., Procopius gives us a vivid picture of a highly governed, 
even efficiently governed, but oppressively governed, and very ambitious society. Now, for next week and a little bit after, remember we have no class on Wednesday, we have class on Monday. You're going to read from Gregory of Tours uh, about Clovis and the Franks. And it will seem more violent and more primitive than what we've been reading. But violence and primitiveness, unfortunately, are part of history and government at almost any time. Uh, so enjoy the intrigue. I'm not going to test you on the names. You'll see there are lots of great cat names uh, uh, of the Frankish barbarians. Uh, but pay attention to the figure of Clovis and to the attitude of Gregory. Because as with Procopius, we've got an interesting, if c not completely reliable, source. <laughs>